Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City, a show where we change the question from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next for Baltimore. On Future City, we understand that nationwide issues affect us all, and we take a wide view on tough topics and then bring them back to the local level. We've covered topics like the Confederate monument controversy, gun control, the possible end to a two-party system, and natural disasters. You can find these shows online at wypr.org slash podcastcentral or wherever you download your podcasts. Now on today's show, we're heading into some tough and confusing territory, legally and morally, and that's immigration. It's been in the news for months, reaching a tipping point in mid-June when the Trump administration began separating children from parents at the border in an effort to deter illegal entry. The condemnation of this policy was widespread, widespread from the left, but also from many on the right. Trump would go on to issue an executive order to stop the separations, but many say it was not enough. The Trump administration also consistently claimed that these were Obama-era policies and that Congress was to blame for the situation. The legal issues are confusing, not to mention the raw emotion so many of us experienced seeing young children being separated forcefully from their parents. So, what is the future of immigration in this country? In this country that is perhaps more than any other country in the world, shaped and defined by its immigrants. First, I'd like to welcome to the show Vincent J. Canato, who is the Associate Professor of History at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, and he is also the author of American Passage, The History of Ellis Island. Professor Canato, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Wes. So you often hear that this country is a country of immigrants, but when does colonization change to immigration here? That's a very good question. I think that's sort of a tricky question, whether for instance, the early Puritans and pilgrims, were they immigrants or were they colonial settlers? I think obviously they were the latter. They were settlers. Um, it, it's, there's no one time when you can say that the, it switches from colonial settlers to immigrants. I always like to, to look at the early 19th century, the early republic, as the time when you start to see um, much greater immigration. Uh, the federal government doesn't start keeping track of immigrants until 1820. And um, so really from then on, the modern period of immigration, where you have the, the pattern of outsiders coming into an already established country and society, and you have that relationship between host culture and immigrants and immigrant culture. And I think what's really fascinating is that when you when people think about this country and they think about the history of immigration in this country, you can almost sum it up in a symbol. And that symbol is the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it's often referred to, uh, the, the, the words on the Statue of Liberty are often repeated when people are making arguments uh, about the need for immigration. And, uh, and your book was really all about the history of, of Ellis Island. Uh, so can you tell me a, a little bit about your book uh, and about the history that you're covering in that? Sure. First of all, you talked about the Statue of Liberty, and it's an important point, but it's also important to keep in mind that the Statue of Liberty really isn't a statue about immigration. Right. It was never designed that way. That's right. It's one of those symbols that sort of evolved over time 
to become this symbol of immigration. Um, So it's an interesting story about how our historical symbols can change and evolve (laughs) over time. And because the Statue of Liberty was right next to Ellis Island, immigrants who came in to New York Harbor passed by the Statue of Liberty uh, that often, in their minds, they associated America with the Statue of Liberty. So it gets kind of that that connection grows tighter and tighter. Yes, the, the the period of Ellis Island, the peak period of Ellis Island, is really from the 1890s to the 1920s. Uh, it's 1892, and it closes in 1954. But really, immigration slows down tremendously in the mid 1920s because of the quotas. So it's about that um, you know 30 year period from 1892 down to the mid 20s. That's the the peak period of immigration and the peak years of Ellis Island. Ellis Island is the processing center for 75% of immigrants who arrived in the country during that time. And so when you say the peak, uh, what, how, how many numbers are we talking about? You know, how, many, how many migrants were actually arriving at Ellis Island during this period? And that's, that's, uh, that's a t- it's tough to get the exact number because you have lots of people coming, going, people who make number of trips. Uh, it's probably somewhere at this time around 12 to 15 million coming in through Ellis Island. The the peak year is 1907, and there are about 1.3 million immigrants coming to America in that one year, and then a little over a million coming through Ellis Island. That's the big year during that period. And how and how was the process handled at that point? So, uh, if if someone made it here by boat or by land, uh, and they arrived without documentation, uh, and say they were just looking for a new job. They weren't fleeing a civil war. They were here for employment. What would the process be? Um, yeah, something you mentioned there is important to point out because it's confusing to today. You said without documentation. Yeah. Uh, you didn't need to have, prior to 1924, you didn't have to have any documents to arrive. Uh, we had the governor of New York uh, just a couple of weeks ago decided because of that, his ancestors were undocumented immigrants. Um, that's not true. He's trying to make a connection to modern day. Mm. But no, before 1924, you didn't need a visa. You could have a passport if you wanted, um, but that was your choice. That wasn't required of you. And there were no categories. Like today, we have visa categories. You can come over as a family relative. You can come over as a refugee. You can come over as a skilled worker. Um, they, the, the government didn't ask those questions then. They didn't care whether you were arriving because you wanted to work or because you were fleeing religious persecution or fleeing um, you know, the police. They didn't, that wasn't really the main concern. You would have arrived and you've gotten to Ellis Island and you would have been inspected there. It was a very quick inspection because there are thousands of immigrants coming a day. And the Congress had set out categories for exclusion, categories of immigrants who were deemed quote-unquote undesirable. And the category included things like people with diseases or criminals, uh, immigrants who are likely to become a public charge, uh, idiots or imbeciles, that was also in the law, and that sort of dealt with issues of intelligence, Uh, polygamists, anarchists. These are various categories of immigrants who would have been excluded if found out during the inspection process. All of those were factors that went into the inspection process. And the percentage of, and so when a person came in, uh, what was the percentage of people that actually, once they went through the inspection process, actually made it through? 
over 98% of immigrants who arrived at Ellis Island eventually made it through and landed in America. So a very small percentage were, were eventually turned away. Mm. Now, having said that, a greater number were detained at Ellis Island for inspections, for hospitalization, for investigations, whatever it may be. Uh, but at the end of the day, over 98% of those who arrived would eventually be let into the country. Um, so for all the talk about undesirables and exclusion, uh, you know, nearly all, 98-plus percent of those immigrants would have arrived in. Now, ha- there's a caveat to that, which is that many immigrants who wanted to come to America could not buy a ticket to get to America because immigrants were also inspected at European ports. Hmm. And if the steamship, by, by steamship companies, if a steamship company thought that the immigrant could not get through the inspection process, they would not sell them the ticket. They could not get through. Uh, so that's a form of exclusion as well. It doesn't come up in the official immigration statistics. So you you could argue that that back then the nation's view of immigrants was was overwhelmingly positive. I wouldn't say that. Okay. <laughs> that's and that's central irony there, right? In that you have you know ninety eight plus percent of immigrants getting through and coming in, right? But you have tremendous at the same time anti immigrant sentiment and a lot of stuff that's being written and. It, you know, congressmen and journalists and average Americans who believe that the immigrants coming in are undesirable, even the ones that make it through, that we have lots of people from, you know, inferior cultures coming in, people who can't fit, you know, who won't be able to assimilate into American society, people who are drained on the, on, on the country. So you have all that at the same time that even though you have this, you know, fairly decent inspection process lets in almost everyone who comes in. And that's that's sort of one of the ironies. Where are we right now? And and do you think that we have a system that better reflects when it comes to the checks, the you know the you know the the immigration checks that we have on board now? That it better reflects the national mood and national temperament, or do you think that we've actually had a retraction in terms of coming up with a balance in the way we do inspections and checks and allowances versus where a national appetite sits? Well, those are really good terms to use. The idea of balance and check because that's really important in thinking about immigration. You, if you, I always say if you want to have, if you support immigration and you want to have immigration in the United States and you want support for immigrants, that you should also support a kind of a, a well-designed and well-operated immigration system. And today's system is it's, it's complicated in many ways in the sense that uh, very few people are really happy with it on both sides of the equation, it's a system that you know, we still have a large number of immigrants who come in. We're averaging now about a million immigrants that come in every year, um, which is a pretty healthy number. But the number of people who want to come in, I think, is much larger than one million. And if you don't qualify for certain visas, it's actually very hard to get to the United States to get through, get to the country legally. If you don't have an immediate relative, if you don't qualify or a skilled worker visa, if you can't claim refugee status, uh, if you don't qualify under the very small diversity lottery that they have, if you don't get a winning ticket, then it's actually hard to come to the country. Um, So in that sense, there is a balance. We're not letting everybody into the country. Um, We are deciding who we want to let in under certain criteria. But that also means that lots of people who can't come in legally try to come in 
illegally and become undocumented because they can't get a legal visa. And, you know, I think you see also among native-born Americans, there's a tension there. There's a belief that, wow, you know, we're letting in a lot of people, that this is changing the country. So it's, I think there's sort of a disequilibrium today in the sense that very few people are happy with the current system. The problem is, how do you tweak the system to sort of satisfy people that we have a, you know, a rational immigration system that treats immigrants well, but yet also kind of regulates them at the border. So we have a well-regulated system of immigration. That's the hard thing that we haven't really been able to get to that in recent years. Dr. Vincent J. Canato, who is the Associate Professor of History at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. I'm Wes Moore, and you've been listening to Future City. Coming up, you've probably heard terms like asylum, temporary protected status, refugee, and economic migrant thrown out in the news. All these terms have legal implications and complicated implications. We're going to learn what they mean and also just what the relationship is between Congress and the current immigration policies. All that coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned in to Future City, the show where we ask, what's next? Today, what's next for immigration? With pictures of children separated from their parents at the border flooding the news, the legal realities surrounding immigration have become even more complex. The president has consistently claimed he is enacting the will of Congress. Many say this is a mischaracterization. Some say it's completely false. So... What's the reality here? What is the law when it comes to asylum seekers, refugees, and immigrants? And here to help us understand this and much more is Dr. Andrew Schoenholtz, who is a professor at Georgetown Law, where he directs the Human Rights Institute and the Center for Applied Legal Studies. And prior to teaching at Georgetown, Professor Schoenholtz served as a deputy director of the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Wes. So we have a lot to cover, but I want to start with some basic definitions. You know, we hear a lot of these terms in the news, and, uh, and I'm not sure all of us fully understand what they mean, what the legal implications are, and how they work together. So first, can you define asylum for us? Absolutely. Asylum is uh, the right for individuals who have a well-founded fear of very serious harm, that's called persecution, such that they can't return safely to their home countries. And they have a right to ask asylum in another country. And this was created actually by treaty, and then the Congress of the United States adopted that, put it into our domestic U.S. statutes in 1980, the Refugee Act of 1980. And what that means is if somebody can demonstrate to either an asylum officer at the Department of Homeland Security or an immigration judge at the Department of Justice, that they do have such a well-founded fear of return to their home country, they are then granted asylum, which means they are allowed to stay in the United States on a permanent basis as long as they comply with U.S. laws, and ultimately they're allowed to become citizens again if they comply with uh, U.S. laws. What about refugee? Very 
good question. So the asylum applies when people reach our border and they are either inside the territory of the United States, let's say they flew into BWI, right, and they had a, a visa and then they apply for asylum after that. That happens on occasion. Um, today we also have people who come in as asylum seekers at the border. They can at a land border or in between the ports of entry. Just because somebody comes in in between the ports of entry, where it's not, where there's no, um, you know, border patrol immediately, but they're ultimately apprehended by the border patrol, they still have a right to seek asylum. Mm -hmm. Refugees are those who the United States actually identifies abroad, usually at a distance from the United States. Uh, they may be in a refugee camp, they may be in an urban setting, and they come from Asian countries, um, African countries, Middle Eastern countries, sometimes Eastern European countries. And the United States selects them, identifies them, because they have special safety needs. They can't stay where they are. Even if they left their home countries, they can't stay where they are. And the United States brings them to, to our country, and once they are admitted, uh, once they fly in, let's say, to BWI again, then they are admitted as refugees. And just like those granted asylum, they have a right to stay on a permanent basis as long as they follow the laws, and they can become U.S. citizens, and many do. And so when we're thinking about the current issues that are taking place right now, uh, you know, I, I know that, for example, President Trump has painted the issue of children at the border uh, as a as a simple matter of legality, uh, mm -hmm. this is just enforcing a law. Uh, you cross the country illegally, you face the consequences. But it's a lot more complicated than that, right? I mean, what are the what are the what legal rights does someone have when they enter into the country, even if they enter into the country illegally? Right. So that's a very good question, and they have whether they present themselves at a southern crossing port of entry on the Mexican border, whether they present themselves to Customs and Border Protection there or in between those ports of entry, they have a right to seek asylum. And that means they're allowed to explain their story. What happened to them? Why are they afraid to go back home? Whether they're children or adults or families, they each have a right to show that they have are afraid to go home and they may be refugees. A determination then has to be made. So the obligation of the United States, both because of the U.S. statutes that Congress passed in 1980 and because uh, this is an international right, they have a right to seek asylum. And then if they're granted asylum, of course, to enjoy that in the United States. So it doesn't matter how they come into the country, whether they come with a visa or not. They have the right to seek asylum. And that's what's going on in the southern border. Clearly, this administration does not want to allow these asylum seekers access to the asylum system. Now, I'm curious because, uh, as you point out and you highlight the southern border, is it different on the northern border? No, the same thing would happen there. If, if for example, there was uh, <clears throat> an upheaval 
in Canada. Mm-hmm. And Canadians started to seek asylum in the United States. They would be able to seek asylum there. It doesn't matter where you present yourself to a government official, if it's at a port of entry in the northern border, southern border, or anywhere else in the United States, right? Uh, you are allowed to ask for a sound, and you get a chance to explain your case. So the legality of separating parents from their children at the border, whether it's southern or northern border, is what? So the legality issue on, on separation. Generally speaking, the families uh, are to stay together when they're seeking asylum. It's it's not, it's just generally not done uh, what this administration is doing to separate them. And the reason that the administration is using as a pretext to separate them is that they're, for the first time, prosecuting asylum seekers who have crossed the border in between the ports of entry without permission, of course, but they crossed because this is the only way for them to seek asylum. And they're prosecuting the adults for what's called unlawful entry or illegal entry. And that that's, can be a misdemeanor. Generally speaking, Wes, the, neither Republican nor Democratic administrations have ever cr- prosecuted criminally first-time crossers who are asylum seekers. In fact, it's very rare that they ever prosecute criminally a first-time crosser. It used to be, including through the Obama administration, in fact, it developed significantly during the Obama administration, that those who had re-entered four or five times and were caught, in order to send them a message, the Obama administration thought, they would then prosecute them for criminal um, entry. It's a misdemeanor, um, subject to six months uh, maximum uh, in prison. But it's never been used until this administration with regards to those who are fleeing violence and seeking asylum. So it's not that the policy is different, it's more so the enforcement of the policy is different. Exactly, precisely. Of course, there is a law that Congress passed that says, you know, you... It is unlawful to cross the border without permission. So if you try to enter that way, yes, there's a, there, it is unlawful to do that. But Congress certainly did not in, pass that statute in order to prosecute refugees or asylum seekers. I'll use asylum seekers because we talked about refugees earlier. Mm-hmm. But among the asylum seekers are people who have a well-founded fear of persecution and can't go back home. And the United States committed not to return them to their home countries. That's a major commitment under our asylum laws that we've made. So this is a policy purposely created along with several others by this administration their goal is to deter asylum seekers from coming to the United States. There is no crisis of numbers. There is a crisis that the administration has created mm. by creating these policies of let's prosecute everybody, and then, therefore, since we're prosecuting them, we'll separate them. So now I have no doubt that they 
will do everything they can to continue prosecuting because they still believe that's the right policy for them. And they will, however, find ways to keep families together. But they'll detain them all. They'll detain families, which is also very unusual. Which also means that, you know, and this is where it goes back to the separation of the of the parents from the from the children, right? And so, what protocol is there for reuniting these families? When you say protocol, do you mean how is the government going to do that? Correct. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh about that, but I'm only <laughs> laughing because you would think that since the government created this uh, procedure of separating families, that it had in mind precisely the mechanisms of how they would ultimately be reunited. But they apparently didn't because they haven't provided information to any of us who are following this very closely, whether they're experts or people who work with this population or people who are concerned about it, the media. They just haven't shared what's going on. Apparently, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is, has the custody of the separated children, they know precisely where they are. So that part of our government, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, is at Health and Human Services, HHS. They know precisely where the children are. Apparently, the Department of Homeland Security, in the rush to detain people wherever they could detain separated families, hasn't figured out exactly where all of they are all and where they can then, the next step is, even once they know that, where do you re- where to unite them? Right. Are they going to put them on military bases? That's one option that has been put out there, possibly. They don't have family detention centers where they can put all of these people. So we don't know yet. There, 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 there is nothing publicly structured around it. I'm sorry. So you said there, there really is nothing as of right now. Right, in terms of the protocol, that's right. Uh, uh, One half of the government that's that's responsible for the children knows where the children are. They are ready, I understand. They are ready to reunite them. So HHS, Health and Human Services, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, is ready to do that, is my understanding. But the Department of Homeland Security doesn't know where to do the reuniting because it's got to be in there if they're going to detain everybody. Now, they could use alternatives to detention, West. They could decide that they will reunite people. Um, They could release them to community organizations who have shown that they will ensure that people come to their hearings. They could release them um, using ankle bracelets if they wanted to, right? That's a possibility. It's much less expensive than detaining them and much more humane, even though it's not the most humane thing to do to a person, mm-hmm. especially since they're simply exercising a right to seek asylum. But they don't have to detain the children in jails with their parents. Mm-hmm. That's a real serious problem, but that looks like what they're trying to do. Those who are fleeing violence have at least the right to ask for asylum. So I have no problems with any government, including our government, trying to properly control unlawful immigration to the United States. 
In order to do that well, it means you need to have a legal immigration system that works well and the proper controls for to, to, to deter unlawful immigration. Now, the commission I worked at in the 1990s, the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, proposed what I still think are what will be the solutions to these problems of controlling un unauthorized immigration, unlawful immigration. But Congress hasn't enacted those yet. What Congress has done is largely put all the resources at the southern border. And that will certainly help the Border Patrol apprehend people who are crossing. But if they're apprehending, most, most of the people they're apprehending are seeking asylum. Uh, those people will continue to come because they're fleeing very bad humanitarian situations. What the government will ultimately do, and this comes from the 2013 a bill that passed the Senate but was never voted on in the House, what they will ultimately do will try to ensure that those who come without permission cannot work in the United States. That's the biggest draw for the economic migrants, the economic immigrants. The only way to do that successfully and meet the needs of businesses, consumers um, in the United States is to ensure that there's an adequate supply of workers. And right now, we don't have the legal immigration laws set up to ensure that the businesses who argue that they need these legal workers can actually hire them um, with, you know, with, through visas. So that would need to change, too. But there's nothing on you. There's, this isn't rocket science, Wes. The Congress knows exactly what needs to be done. Um, it's been known for quite some time. The political will to do it is another story. You're, it's 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 not rocket science. Uh, it's also not new. And to your point, I mean, it's a it's a it's a repeated can that has been kicked down uh, a road. When you're watching that disconnect and the language and the narrative behind the disconnect continue to become more, uh, uh, you know, become continue to become more more uh, triggered. Yes, exactly. And I understand why it upsets people to see that there are people who are trying to come to the United States and are not coming with visas. The problem is that we don't have visas for uh, certain people to come, and particularly for those who are fleeing violence and, and need safety. Um, I will also add, uh, Wes, that I think our region, it's, it's, it's the United States has its obligations, and right now from the way this administration is, has put into place policies, we are not living up to those obligations. But I will say that um, a country like Mexico has to do more, too, yeah. that they could protect some people, but they don't have a system in place to do that, yeah. uh, to do it well. Um, there are people fleeing from these three countries who are going to Costa Rica, to Mexico, and in Costa Rica, they're... they're they have a system in place for some, but it's not a big country. Mexico's a bigger country. They could do more. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees could help out there considerably, but that's resource-intensive, and they need to develop that system. The United States has a system in place. The problem is that this administration is doing everything they can to dismantle that system and create a crisis out of it. And so people, you know, see the – some people feel, okay, 
You know, these people are crossing un- unlawfully. The difference in with the past is that these people are fleeing violence, serious violence, the sort of violence that if any of us were there and we couldn't find a safe place in the country, we would leave too. Yeah. We wouldn't want our kids to be at, at risk. We wouldn't want our daughters to be subject to sexual violence by the gangs. We wouldn't want our um, boys to be recruited by the gangs. Um, these are serious problems, and the United States has a long history of trying to protect people in those situations, and we can do a lot better than we're doing right now. Dr. Andrew Schoenholtz, from, a professor from Georgetown Law and also director of the Human Rights Institute and the Center of Applied Legal Studies. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Wes. I really appreciate it. Good luck. I'm Wes Moore, and you've been listening to Future City. Coming up, we're talking with a representative from the International Rescue Committee here in Baltimore. They're working to honor the refugee convention here in our city. We'll learn how refugees could contribute to solutions to entrenched issues, from income disparity to the housing crisis. Stay tuned. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. So today we've been tackling the complicated immigration crisis that's here in our country. We've learned about our nation's history in immigration and parsed out some of the complex legal terms. But now we're going to zoom in on Baltimore. So the International Rescue Committee has a location right here in the city, and they have resettled about 15,000 refugees here in the metro area. And here to tell us more about that is Ruben Chandrasekhar who is the IRC Executive Director. Ruben, welcome to the show, and thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. So let's first start with the IRC. What what services do you provide, and what is the mission? You know, the IRC just uh, briefly um, was founded in 1933 at the behest of Albert Einstein. Um, and over the last 85 years, we have developed into an international humanitarian organization that works with displaced people across the world. Uh, so if you if you think of the human being who's displaced by a crisis, um, you know you could you could think of them as having three points uh, uh, of travel in that crisis, right? So uh, let's say there's a there's a civil war in Syria, and and there's a war comes to your neighborhood, and you have to run away from your neighborhood to seek protection for your family. Uh, that could be the first point of that crisis when a person is displaced from their neighborhood. Uh, so we work I- in Syria, for example, supplying people with food, clothing, shelter, medical supplies, etc. Uh, now, following the Syrian example, when the civil war continues to uh, expand, uh, over half of the 24 million people in Syria have been displaced mm-hmm. uh, internally in the country, and about five million people have been displaced across borders. So when uh, a person crosses a border fearing for their life, they could they become refugees. And uh, the IRC works in places like Jordan, Lebanon, uh, across the Aegean Sea in Greece uh, to uh, provide services to those who are fleeing the crisis in Syria, right? And so that's the second point of their crisis. The third point of the crisis happens when uh, people are resettled to places like the United States uh, with permission from the U.S. government. 
And when a refugee arrives in the U.S., uh, the IRC has offices uh, in 25 cities, including Baltimore, where we welcome refugees into the city and help them to hit the reset button and, and start life all over again. And so, uh, you know, our mission is global. Uh, we, we help people in this arc of their crisis, in all three points of their crisis, uh, including in the U.S., where we, you know, welcome them and help them to start a new life. So let's talk a bit about once they get to the U.S. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm Syrian. I'm fleeing the civil war. Uh, I have now made it, made my way to Baltimore. Mm-hmm. What happens? Well, you know, we are contracted by the federal government to provide a range of services for refugees uh, legally permitted to enter the country. And so we are notified, you know, usually uh, a month in advance that a family is arriving in Baltimore. Uh, so we would uh, rent an apartment. Uh, and we'll have a caseworker who is assigned to that family who would go to the airport and actually pick them up when they step off the plane and take them to their apartment. Uh, and then over the course of the next, you know, six months to a year, we would provide them with a range of services. So things like addressing their initial health care needs. Many refugees have lived in refugee camps or in, in you know, situations of crisis abroad. They haven't had a chance to see a doctor. So we help, help them to access medical care. Children who arrive, you know, f- over 50% of the clients we serve are children. Uh, some of them have been born in refugee camps, uh, have not gone, you know, may, not, may have had interrupted education. So we help to register them in school and actually help them to access education services. Uh, and then um, we very quickly work with the adults to make sure that they can get a job because ultimately they have to be self-sufficient. So within six months, 85% of the adults we serve are in full-time jobs and are able to, you know, eke out their basic living. I'm sorry. And how, how do you do that? That's a remarkably high number. It is. It is. We ha- you know, uh, it's a hardworking team. And, uh, you know, following on the conversation you had with the professor from Georgetown recently, uh, yeah, you know, we have a number of employers in the region, the metro area, who are looking for people uh, uh, to work. And, you know, uh, many of the clients we serve uh, led lives that you and I would recognize. Yeah. You know, some of them were construction workers, some of them were doctors, some were engineers, some were teachers. Uh, and they've been denied that chance to work uh, and, and to, as a parent, you know, provide for their spouse or their family. And so when they come here, you know, they, they know that they've been given, you know, a remarkable opportunity to start life over and they're very eager to go to work. And so we connect, uh, business needs with the passion our clients bring into the area to restart and rebuild their lives. And so once they come, are, are they permanent residences? Are, are they permanent residents? Mm-hmm. Uh, can they apply for citizenship? What, what's the process for them after that? Yeah, so uh, all refugees have a path to citizenship upon arrival. And so within one year, they can apply for their green card and become permanent residents. And then within five years, they can apply for U.S. citizenship. And, um, you know, for instance, last year, uh, last calendar year, we helped over 500 people apply for their green cards and almost as many apply for their citizenship because we've been resettling refugees in the Baltimore area for so long that they come back to us 
to access our immigration services, and then we help them to apply for green cards and citizenship. So our services include the initial kind of what we call reception services where they get off the plane, we help them to find housing, address basic needs, get a job, uh, and then we offer a range of other services over the course of five years uh, to assist them with integrating further both socially and economically. Um, you know, Baltimore City uh, actually offers us a unique opportunity to uh, to not only fulfill our mission as a humanitarian organization, but to work in partnership with the city uh, to help uh, develop the city, mm-hmm. right? As, as you know very well, um, you know, when the steel industry collapsed in the post-industrial era, so to speak, you know, Baltimore lost over 300,000 people yeah. as the jobs left, people left. Um, and, you know, we have a city that's built for a million people, but a tax base of 600,000, right? So, you know, uh, many mayoral administrations have recognized the need to bring in people into the city. And, um, you know, immigrants and refugees um, bring that energy to rebuild into a city that needs that energy, right? So our our clients live in the city, they work in the city, they pay taxes in the city, they buy homes in the city, uh, they start businesses in the city. When you think about the things that you're seeing coming out of Washington and whether it's the White House, Congress, et cetera, mm-hmm. laws around immigration that you know that um, uh, the things that are being debated and discussed that could fundamentally make your job easier. What are some of the things that you think are being debated and discussed right now that could fundamentally make your job easier? Well, you know, I think as a, as a country that, is a global power um, that that was involved in the signing of the Refugee Convention in the 1950s following World War II. Like we recognized uh, as a country at that point that um, when there's a global crisis, when there's a global war, you know, people are displaced and we have to be able to find mechanisms to help a certain number of displaced people or the whole world collapses, right? When you have like 60 million people displaced during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a similar crisis today. We have about 60 million people on the planet displaced, uh, just as it was during World War II, right? And so that crisis, A, has to be recognized. And uh, the reason for signing the Refugee Convention in 1951, 52, is still relevant today, right? Because we still have millions of people who are displaced. Uh, so I think recognizing our global... Uh, commitment to addressing this humanitarian crisis is an important one. And I think that's being denied today. It's being sidelined as if it's not a crisis. Uh, so I, I think a- acknowledgement of that is, is, is essential. Secondly, getting back to your point about, you know, there's this f- sometimes furor about, um, you know, immigrants and refugees taking from this country, right? And you know, in, in July of 2017, uh, the, the Trump administration uh, asked uh, the Department of Health and Human Services to conduct a study uh, to figure out the answer to this question, are refugees taking more than they are giving, right? This was in <laughs> July of 2017. And what the Department of Health and Human Services found out that over the past decade, right, refugees have contributed $63 billion more than they have taken from the system in terms of 
resettlement services, right? $63 billion more. That's a net benefit to the country. And guess what happened to that report? It got buried, (laughs) right? So this is the administration, their own team doing the research, found a positive net impact. So I think it's important for truth to be spoken about, you know, uh, the contributions that refugees are making to this country and that... uh, and that they are positive ones. I'm not saying there aren't challenges. I'd be the last one to say that, given that I work with uh, clients every day. Uh, but I think, um, you know, there are a number of economic indicators that suggest that, you know, uh, that people contribute much more than they take from this system. How innovative can cities and states be? To ad- how, innova- how innovative can cities and states be to be able to uh, better welcome, better support, come up with, uh, with, with, with policies and placements that can, that can truly help people uh, in, in, in a time of need? Or is this really a federal thing? It isn't a federal thing, actually. I mean, it, it, I think it's both, right? I mean, uh, the federal government sets immigration policy. Uh, you know, who is welcome, who isn't. The federal government sets refugee policy. Every year, the president sets the number of refugees the U.S. will admit. And this year, the president set it at 45,000, which is a historic low. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are on pace to resettle less than half of those people. Like, so 22,000 this fiscal year. So that's, you know, Even when refugee policy uh, was favorable, when U.S. refugee policy was favorable, uh, you know, we were resettling, you know, less than 1% of the refugees in the world, right? And now we're resettling one-third of 1%. So it's not like a huge commitment, but it's a significant one. So it's absolutely essential that the federal government, you know, sets the tone. But there's lots lo- local government can do, and, and I think you're very familiar, you know, with uh, Mayor Rawlings Blake's policy uh, of wanting to welcome 10,000 new families into the city, and that sent a very strong message. Uh, and now the current mayor is continuing and building on that. And she, and she was very clear that she saw this population as part of that 10,000 new families. Absolutely, yeah. and you know, as you've already stated, over the last 18 years, we brought in 15,000 individuals. Yeah. So I think we, I think, made a contribution there. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but so one is having those kind of welcoming policies and saying, hey, listen, we welcome immigrants and refugees because we feel that they should be part of our community, uh, and we and we welcome you. I think a simple act of, like that goes a long way. But then I think what Baltimore City has done and other cities have done is actually create agencies within uh, the city. So here we have the Mayor's Office for Immigrant and Multicultural Affairs, or MIMA, and uh, Catalina Rodriguez-Lima, who's the director of that agency, is an incredible advocate for immigrants and for the city. Uh, and, and so she's enacted a number of you know uh, things to ensure that city agencies are welcoming to people who uh, come from different parts of the world and may speak slightly different languages and, you know, uh, you know, enact language access policies within agencies so that they could provide interpretation sometimes if needed to communicate with their constituents. All of those things matter to, to set the tone of welcome and inclusion. Ruben, you are doing great work, my friend. Thank you. Thank you as well. That is uh, Ruben Chandra Sekhar, who is the executive director for the International Rescue Committee. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your leadership in the city and beyond. And thank you as well, Les. 
Thank you so much for being a part of this difficult but really important conversation. And before we take off, I just want to leave you with a few thoughts. Sometimes we try to frame these conversations simplistically, but the simplicity leads to inaccuracy. Where the heart and the head debate lies in seeing parents separated for their children, where your heart says it's wrong, but your head says that the parent did something illegal, context does matter. One of the fascinating things about this conversation is that the immigration debate is as old as immigration. It has always been complicated. And now while we cannot forget laws are important, we also cannot forget the economic benefits of immigration or the hardships of people fleeing their home countries in order to find a sense of refuge at our shores. The goal of this show is not to find an answer to the immigration crisis, and it is a crisis, but rather to look ahead to a time when immigration policies better reflect the values of our country. When my family first came to this country a little over 50 years ago, things weren't perfect then either. So it's not lost to me that when my grandparents came to this country, they did not come to this country escaping war or seeking asylum or hoping not to get caught. And that is an important distinction. But what they did find was a country that, despite its flaws, created a pathway for their children and their grandchildren that they could not have found elsewhere. Future cities are those that can create opportunities for both those who are fourth generation and for those in their fourth month in a new country. And in order for our city to win, we can and we must do both. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. The show airs the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. You can hear today's episode along with previous episodes online at wypr.org slash podcastcentral or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm your host, Wes Moore, on 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station. Thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.